Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. When we first released this episode on September 8th, 2021, Anthony Sims had already spent 22 years in prison and was hoping to bring some much-needed attention to this horrendous injustice. At the time, his path to freedom were uncertain. Since then, some monumental changes have occurred. For this updated episode, we spoke again with Anthony and his legal team. You'll hear this episode as it was originally released, but with brand new content to pick up where we left off. On May 18, 1998, a woman named Rachel claims to have seen her neighbors, Julius Graves and Charlique Winbush, talking. Charlique was telling her fiancé, Graves, about how a man named Lee Run Chen, who worked at the Chinese restaurant up the block, Mr. Hings, had touched her inappropriately. Graves replied that he would scare him. Later that day, Julius Graves, his fiancé's cousin and another younger friend, had a few drinks with Graves' friend Anthony Sims as they listened to music by Anthony's car. As the evening wrapped up, Graves asked Anthony to drive him down the block to Mr. Hings. Oblivious to any issue with Chen, Anthony agreed. They went into the restaurant when it is believed that Graves shot and killed Lee Run Chen. In shock, Anthony fled alone while Graves and the two younger guys returned to Graves' apartment, wiped the gun clean, figured out where to stash it, and began to conjure up a story to deflect blame from Graves and onto Anthony Sims. With Graves and a number of his friends and family supporting this phony narrative, investigators set their sights on Anthony. Only one witness came forward independently who was neither coerced nor friends and family of Julius Graves. Graves' neighbor, Rachel, who was on the phone outside of Mr. Hing's during the shooting and saw Graves running from the restaurant with a sawed-off shotgun in his hand. Yet, her statement was ignored by investigators and hidden from the defense. And as a result, Anthony Sims continues to serve 25 years to life. This is Wrongful Conviction with Jason Flom.
Welcome back to Wrongful Conviction with Jason Flom. That's me. And today, if you hear my voice, it sounds sort of down. I mean, this is one of the most troubling wrongful conviction cases that I've ever seen in 28 years of doing this work, which is almost as long as Anthony Sims has been locked up for a crime he obviously didn't commit. First of all, I want to introduce the two attorneys who are so devoted to this case and to this man, Jonathan Hiles and Thomas Hoffman. Thank you both for being here. Thank you. Thank you for doing this, Jason. And now, of course, saving the best for last. And I'm just so sorry that you're here under these circumstances, but I'm honestly honored that you're here with us today on the podcast. So, Anthony Sims, welcome to Wrongful Conviction. Thank you. And Anthony, of course, is now a 45-year-old man, 24 years into a 25-to-life sentence for a murder he didn't commit. Now, this began back in 1998, but I want to go back even further than that. Um, Anthony, where did you grow up and what was your childhood like? Was it a happy childhood? Yes. I grew up in Brooklyn, New York, and grew up with my mother and father and my two older brothers. And we had a very happy, loving family. We would do a lot of fun activities together, go on vacations. I remember every Sunday was family day. And leading up to when this awful crime occurred, you had kids, a, a fiance at that time. What was life like for you? I lived what I thought was a, a normal life. I worked for Bellantic Telephone Company, and I installed phone lines and provided doubts on the customers. I lived with my fiance Keisha and my two sons at the time. So this brings us to May 18th, 1998, when you, Anthony, witnessed a terrible crime. There was a Chinese restaurant, Mr. Hing's, which was down the block from where your former friend Julius Grays lived. And around 10 o'clock that night, a man named Lee Run Chen, who worked at Mr. Hing's, was shot and killed. But earlier that day, before any of that happened, you thought you were just going to swing by Graves' apartment to show him this new car you bought for your fiance, Keisha. Julius Graves was, at that time, my best friend. I wanted to show him the car that I bought my wife to surprise her. So I drove to his house at that time. He asked me to drive him to the liquor store. I went to the regular store and bought some beers. We was talking. I was letting the music play from my car radio. And then his two friends came over. His fiance's cousin, Derek. And then later on, his friend, Louie. And they was listening to music with us. And I want to say like around 10 o'clock. It was getting late. I wanted to go home show my wife the car, and I wanted to be home with my sons. So Julius asked me to drive him to the Chinese restaurant. So I thought this was a weird request because he lived down the block around the corner from the restaurant, and I thought he could have just walked. So I said, all right, listen, I, I was drinking a couple of beers. Let me go to the store to buy some breast mints because I don't like driving around like that. I remember Julius saying, listen, and I'm going to the house. I'm going to go check with Chalik, which was his girlfriend at the time, to see if she wanted anything from the store as well. So I said, all right. So I can only assume that's the time that he got the weapon. And when I got back to my car, Julius was sitting in my passenger seat and his two little friends were sitting in the back. They know that I didn't expect him to be in the car because they looked at me with this look like, all right, well, we're just going to go to this restaurant with you. So I didn't think nothing of it. I got in the car and I drove to the Chinese restaurant. When I got inside of the restaurant, I started looking around for the menus and stuff to see what I was going to purchase for my wife. The next thing I know, I saw Julius come in the store with like a weird expression on his face. And almost immediately, he reached in his pants and pulled out a sawed-off shotgun. 
And, and I remember thinking, like, what the hell is going on? And where did he even get that gun from? Uh, I asked him, I said, what the hell are you doing? Are you crazy? Julius Sexy said, no. Approached the counter, pointed the gun at one of the workers and pulled the trigger. And I couldn't believe it. I felt the blood rush from my body. And all I remember at that time, just running out the store, getting in my car. Julius jumped in there too, and I said, oh, get out. I kicked everybody. I said, everybody get out of my car. And I drove home and told Keisha what happened. That was the worst night of my life. Yeah, it would be the worst night of almost anyone's life to witness something like that. I got home, I got on the phone, and I called them. And I said, what the hell is wrong with you? I, I probably cursed him. I said some other things to him. And I, basically, I wanted to know why did he put me in that situation? Why did, why did he allow me to walk into that? Why didn't he tell me what was going on? Maybe he thought I would talk him out of it. I don't know. But he just kept apologizing. And that's when he told me that, you know, the person that he shot died. I can't believe it. And I said, Julius, don't ever call me again. I don't want to hear from you no more. And I just wanted to try to separate myself from him. So it turns out that Julius Graves had a motive. And that is that Graves was upset that Mr. Chen, who worked at the Chinese restaurant, had reportedly touched the hand of Graves's fiance. Charlique earlier in the day of the murder, that he had touched her hand inappropriately. She was upset about this. She told Graves, and Graves said that he would go to the restaurant and scare the victim. We know he did a lot more than that, but that appears to have been the motive that we didn't find out until many years later. Now, what was known at the time is that after the murder, after Anthony got Graves and his two friends, Derek Dollop and Louis Cologne, to leave the car, it is undisputed that Graves took the shotgun used in the murder, went back to the apartment where he was staying, feverishly wiped off the shotgun to get his fingerprints off of it, and then gave the gun to his friend, Louis Cologne, to hide from police. And Louis, by the way, was only 14 years old at the time. Graves's excuse for doing this is that he wasn't thinking. That was his only justification. Now, furthermore, this murder weapon, the sawed-off shotgun, had previously been kept in a lockbox in the apartment where Graves was staying. And Graves and his friend, Derek Dollop, who was also his fiance's cousin, admitted even that they knew the shotgun was kept there and had seen it there before. So all the evidence suggested that the shotgun belonged to Graves, and it is undisputed he had handled it right after the murder occurred. Right. And the physical evidence from the scene later proved that this sawed-off shotgun from Graves' apartment was used in the murder. So this is where we start seeing a narrative being formed from the Graves camp to try to deflect responsibility for this murder away from Graves and toward Anthony. And initially, it will seem like a lot of witnesses came forward to support what was really just coming straight from Graves' imagination and what later became the prosecution's narrative. But it will become clear as we move along here that none of these witnesses were to be believed. They should have been believed for two reasons. One, it's discovered later that these eyewitness accounts are initially riddled with glaring inconsistencies and contradictions that were then changed to fit a cohesive narrative in time for trial, which is just not typical when a group of people are telling the truth, obviously, right? And two, most of the witnesses are friends and family of graves. There are only two witnesses, two, who are not 
Graves' friends or family, one of whom was coerced by police into an ambiguous statement that nonetheless helped the prosecution's case at the time of trial, and the other is the only independent witness who bravely came forward to tell the truth about Graves' motive and having seen him running from the restaurant with a gun. However, none of this info about these two witnesses was known to the defense at trial, but we'll get to that later. Now, right now, let's focus on the dubious narrative coming from the Graves' camp. So, the day after the murder, Charlique's brother, William Robertson, told police a secondhand story from Charlique that Charlique had said that Anthony had come by earlier, the day of the murder, and taken the shotgun out of the apartment. Then comes the narrative from Graves about the night of the murder. Okay, ready? So, according to Graves, Anthony dropped by the apartment around 6 p.m., and they had a few drinks. Anthony allegedly showed Graves a shotgun that he had in his trunk, a shotgun that Graves should have recognized as the one from his apartment. Now, at some point, Anthony and Graves are joined by Charlique's cousin, Derek Dallop, and another younger friend, Luis Cologne. According to Graves, Anthony had a previous altercation with the victim, Lee Run Chen, who worked at the Chinese restaurant down the block, Mr. Hing's. The reason behind this disagreement and the timing changed between initial interviews and trial. In this farcical version of events, Anthony allegedly had refused to pay for something at Mr. Hing's because it was either something he hadn't ordered or some chicken was undercooked or it didn't look right. You know, lying is tricky that way, right? It gets hard to keep track of your own bullshit. Anyway, at the time of this alleged problem and refusal of payment, Lee Run Chen allegedly pulled a gun on Anthony, to which Anthony allegedly responded that he would get Chen for this. According to Graves, that night, in the lead-up to the murder, Anthony brought up this two- to three-week-old and then later four- to five-month-old beef several times and was getting heated up about it before they headed to Mr. Hing's, where Anthony was the one who allegedly shot Lee Run Chen, not Graves, whose fiance had complained to him about Chen's inappropriate touching earlier that day. So this just super believable narrative is what became the prosecution's theory. It just feels liberating to hear you retell that story because it sounded crazy to me. And from you saying how crazy it sounds to you, that means a lot because I've always believed down the line that the truth was going to come out. I didn't know that I would be in prison 23 years before this truth came out. And it's going to be out there now, finally, for everyone to hear. And Jonathan, there's even more to know about Graves' ridiculous narrative. The story against Anthony was not only ridiculous, but as you alluded to, it was so inconsistent. Graves first actually told police Anthony and Graves' other two friends had gone to the Chinese restaurant earlier on that evening and then come back and Anthony was heated about an argument with the victim. But Graves' two friends never said they went to the Chinese restaurant. It was just made up. So Graves had to change his story and say that he had witnessed an argument between Anthony and the victim months earlier over a food order, and that Anthony was still fuming about this months later on the night of the murder. Again, Graves' friends, right, who were trying to back him up, they never said that Anthony had any beef with the victim or was fuming about it in the car that evening. So the story never really made sense. But what was important to police and prosecutors, unfortunately, was clearing the case. And once they had Graves and his two friends who were willing to point the finger at Anthony as a scapegoat, the train had left the station. 
Okay, so they've got their sights set on you, Anthony. And initially, they show up at your job, but you were out that day. This tipped you off, though, that they were at least looking to talk to you, and eventually you went in voluntarily. I mean, you were an innocent man, so did you think, well, I'll just go in there, clear this up, and head on home? I did, and a big key that was being left out was there was a camera inside of that restaurant. So I thought, regardless, that somebody would, at one point in time, review the tape. And then I had nothing to worry about. The tape would clear everything up for me. So, yes, I drove myself to the precinct. And that's where I've been ever since. Locked away. You never walked out of there again? Never walked out, no. What happened with the videotape from the Chinese restaurant? They said that the tape wasn't recorded. Do you believe that? To be honest, I don't know what to believe anymore. I used to have a lot of faith in the judicial system. But from being incarcerated myself and listening to some of the other horror stories from people in here with me. I don't know what to believe now. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Bean Dad, The Dress. 30 to 50 feral hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes. That it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. They had their man, and any other evidence 
that existed then or emerged later that suggested Anthony was innocent or that Graves was guilty was just an inconvenience to the prosecution's case, and so it was not disclosed to the defense. And of course, listeners of this show will know that when the authorities withhold exculpatory evidence, it's called a Brady violation. Brady violations are illegal, but as our listeners also know, Brady violations rarely seem to bring any actual ramifications for the people who commit them. So it just keeps fucking happening in case after case. And and in this case, I believe the worst Brady violation, the worst one among so many, is the sole independent witness who came forward in this case that I alluded to earlier, whose statement was hidden from the defense. We'll refer to her only as Rachel. So Rachel was right outside the Chinese restaurant where the murder occurred, talking on a payphone. This was an undisputed fact, and police spoke to her. And initially, she said that she had heard the shot and seen people running from the Chinese restaurant, but she didn't have her contacts in, and so she couldn't identify who those people were. That was what she said. Now, this was not a neighborhood where it was easy to report to police who you had seen involved in a murder, much less if that person was your neighbor. And actually, Rachel, who was 17 at the time, she was neighbors with Julius Graves. Now, a couple of weeks went by and Rachel had kept this information to herself, but her conscience was gnawing away at her. She learned that Anthony had been wrongfully arrested for the crime, and she actually received a call from Anthony's wife at the time, Keisha, who said to Rachel, I hear you were present at the scene and that you may have seen something. Please just talk to police. Tell them what you saw, whatever you saw. Please just tell them the truth. Now, at around the same time, Rachel actually had an exchange with Graves and his fiance outside of their brownstone. During that exchange, Rachel said, I know what you did. I saw what you did. In truth, she had seen Julius Graves running from the Chinese restaurant with a shotgun right after the shot was fired. And she said, I know what you did and you're trying to put it on somebody else. And Graves said, you talk too much. And if you keep talking, I'm going to shut you up. And so she called police, spoke to a detective, and she said, I saw Julius Graves running from the Chinese restaurant with a big, long gun. I know it was him. He's my neighbor. And the detective said, we already have another guy. It was the taller guy. Anthony is 6'3". Graves is 5'9". Rachel said, no, I, I know they look completely different. I know that it was Graves who was running with a shotgun. And the detective basically said, well, thank you for your time and hung up the phone. Charlique had anticipated that Rachel could go to the police. So Charlique reports that as harassment, they had that report. But if I can complete that, incredibly, even though Rachel lived next door to Charlique, they did not question Rachel at all about that police report. They didn't have to go across the country to interview somebody or across the state, right? They'd go across the street. Across the street. Somebody who who actually had begged to be interviewed, even though she had been threatened by a really dangerous guy, was like, no, I'm going to do the right thing. But instead, she just got shut down by those who are supposed to protect us, which left Graves out on the streets to potentially commit more violent crimes while Anthony was stripped of his freedom and civil rights. So back to this 
investigation, if you want to call it that, the grandmother of Graves' children, you know, Charlique's mom, signs on to parrot some of the narrative. This is Dorothy Bolding, whose story changed from her initial interview when she didn't mention Anthony Graves or even having been at Mr. Hing's at all. This interview, critical information here, was hidden from the defense. And by the time the grand jury and the trial roll around, she's changed her story, now claiming to be able to implicate Anthony in the murder. But still, the investigators needed to get someone outside of Graves' inner circle in order to strengthen the case. And as I alluded to earlier, this is the only other witness besides Rachel who was not directly related to Graves. She was a single mom who certainly appears to have been coerced into giving an ambiguous statement that helped the prosecution's case at trial, and we'll refer to this witness as Shalima. Now, Shalima, as we have since learned, she initially told police that she when visiting her friend's apartment across the street from the murder, had heard this loud bang, had looked out the window from a second floor on a dark night, and had seen a couple of men ran out of the Chinese restaurant, but she couldn't describe them at all. She'd seen that one of them appeared to be holding a long gun, but she couldn't make any sort of description. And they said, well, let's take you in and see if we can refresh your memory. They took her in, they separated her, from her young child, and they interrogated her for hours and wouldn't tell her where her child was, which she kept asking. And then eventually they emerged with a report saying that she identified the taller man as being the one holding the gun, which was something that was clearly fed to her because she told police that she couldn't describe the men she had seen, including the person who was running with the gun. We first learned that in the past year. Shalima said, I don't know how I could have testified that I saw the taller man running with the shotgun. I couldn't have made a description. And that's what I told detectives. And their response was to take me in for basically a full day of interrogation separated from my child until they had pressured her to give them what they wanted. Right. So now they finally had someone, as shaky as this ID was, to corroborate what the Graves camp was saying. So July 2nd, 1998, they charged you, Anthony, with two counts of murder in the second degree, intentional and depraved indifference, and one count of criminal possession of a weapon in the fourth degree, a weapon that you had never even held in your hand. And before trial even began in April 1999, Graves attempted to disappear. Graves didn't want to testify. He wanted to get himself off of the hook, but even he perhaps had some pangs of conscience about falsely implicating someone who had formerly been his friend. And so he went underground before the trial started, and he was on probation at the time, actually on a weapons possession charge. And he hadn't been reporting to his probation officer for three years. And so the district attorney's office actually initiated proceedings to revoke Graves' probation so that he would be remanded to prison, potentially. This one's really mystifying. I mean, you have a guy who has a propensity to violence, who knows his way around with weapons, who was in possession of the gun, who had a previous weapons violation. And it's like, yeah, no, we're just going to ignore that. Julius was asked directly, have you reported to your probation officer often and regularly? He answered yes, when he hadn't reported for three years. And that lie was not corrected. 
And clearly the credibility of Graves was critical. We did not know that he had not reported till last year. So at trial, the state presented Shalima along with Graves' cadre of liars, right? Graves himself, of course, and his fiance's cousin, Derek Dallop, his friend, Luis Colon, and the grandmother of Graves' two children, Dorothy Bolding. Now, Bolding's story changed twice. In her initial interview, she didn't mention seeing Graves, Anthony, or even having been at Mr. Hing's. And then at the grand jury, she testified that while drinking outside of Mr. Hing's, she saw Anthony enter with a long gun and heard a shot fired before Graves entered the restaurant. Then at trial, I don't know, maybe she had some pangs of conscience. Either way, though, she testified that she saw Anthony go in, followed by Graves, then heard a gunshot, but never saw a gun. Miss Bolding, her initial report would have really discredited her as a prosecution witness, was not disclosed. Also not disclosed or bias given her relation to Julius Graves. Okay, so now there's Shalima. She also testified against you, Anthony. She said that on the night of the shooting, she was visiting a friend who lived on the second floor in an apartment across the street from Mr. Hing's. She said that she heard a gunshot and looked out the window to see two black men running from the restaurant. And that, quote, the taller guy had a gun. This was helpful for the prosecution because Anthony was taller than Graves. Now, the prosecutor tried to get her to identify Anthony, look, you know, look around the courtroom. Is the person you saw running with the gun here? She said, I don't know. I can't say. And also, she testified that of the two men she saw running, it was the person who was running second, who was behind, who was running with the shotgun. Graves testified that he was running second, that he was behind Anthony. So actually, her testimony was very ambiguous, but it was really the only thing the prosecution had that came outside of Graves' inner circle. And as a result, the failure to disclose what Shalima had, had told detectives from the beginning that she couldn't describe anything was a very damaging Brady violation for Anthony's defense. Was there any real defense mounted in your case, Anthony? No. We didn't even call any witnesses on my behalf, although I asked my lawyer, can I testify? And he said no. Like, he was really confident that there was no need for that because the case was a weak case and they'll eventually be able to say, you know, Julia did or whatever. And that was that. So I didn't really have a defense. So after hearing from Graves' network of liars and Shalima's ambiguous testimony, and then importantly, the absence of Rachel, did you still hold out any hope at all that you'd be vindicated? I did, only because it was a, it was a time during the deliberations where the jury came back into the courtroom and they passed a note that said they were deadlocked. And the judge said, well, listen, I'm going to give you a brief Allen charge. He was basically saying, well, I don't know what the problem is. It's not like he's facing a death penalty. Go give me a verdict. And they needed some readbacks, some questions and stuff. I was still hopeful, although hope was slipping away at that point. But they came back and, and found you guilty. What was that moment? Was the, If you can just take us inside that courtroom and inside your, your mind and your soul at that moment. Uh, I was shocked, confused. I was hurt, devastated, nauseous. I mean, I was angry. I remember trying to stand up, but I didn't have any feeling in my leg. I just felt weak. 
ironically, what was going through my mind at that point was my sons because they were so young. And every night, I would tell them crazy bedtime stories, either ones that I read from a book or I used to make up some stories. And they looked forward to going to sleep just so that I could come in the room and tell them stories. And I said to myself, I'm not going to be able to do that for a while. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As you can imagine, for the first couple of years, I was very bitter. I, I, was, I, was, I was mad. I was angry. And I was almost like a walking zombie, so to speak. I mean, I was always trying to programs and stuff and try to help myself and help other people as well but inside I was really messed up and I remember going on a visit one day and my son little Anthony Jr which I love to do I love both my sons he was crying he just broke out one day crying on a visit and he said daddy don't worry I'm gonna I'm gonna get Julius for doing this to you because he had known at that point Julius as his uncle because we were so close and I looked at him, 
And I said, no, Anthony, don't ever say that again. I said, don't ever say that, no. And I was basically letting them know that the law will eventually prevail and things will work itself out. And in the same tears, he looked at me and he says, well, Daddy, you got to promise me that you would never do anything to him, Anthony. And I said, I won't, Anthony, I promise you that. And it was that point that I forgave Julius. And I continued to live my life as a life giver, but also trying to help any and everybody out because in a sense, helping me as well. But that's the, that was my turning point. That's when I forgave him for doing what he did. Wow. Sounds like you, you did a hell of a job even in the brief time you had with your sons uh, raising them and teaching them, right? Unfortunately, prison has a way to divide families, as you can only imagine. So my son's mother, which is my wife at the time, her name is also Keisha. This prison bit became too much for us and it felt like I was holding her back from living her life. So we both came to the agreement that we should just divorce and separate so that she can live her life, so to speak. And God always has a way of making things happen. But my wife today, which is also named Keisha, is my junior high school girlfriend. She was my cheerleader when I was the captain of the basketball team. So Keisha started to write me, and one thing turned into another. All of the old feelings came back, and we decided to try one more time and get married. And that was probably the best decision of my life. My name is Keisha Sims, and I am Anthony Sims' wife. And it is. It's the best decision that we've ever made, that I've ever made. Anthony and I were, you know, junior high school sweethearts. You know, people in this situation always think that the people in prison, you know, they should be grateful that someone makes this type of commitment to them under these circumstances. But for me, Anthony has brought just so much to my life. He has enriched my life so much. I've grown so much as a person because of him. This situation in particular has made me stronger. And so I'm just grateful that he chose me to go on this journey with him and to fight for his innocence. One day I was reading the newspaper from a friend of mine named Kevin Jenkins. He asked me to read this article because the article involved a person that we both knew from Green Haven, Emmanuel Cooper. Kevin suggested that I try to get in touch with Tom Hoffman, the lawyer that got this guy out. So I talked to my wife and she said that night it was all for her to sleep because she worked around a lot of lawyers. She knew that she only had one shot at this. And she was making little bullet points. She was rehearsing what she would say because she knew that it was really important to obtain Thomas Hoffman. She said the first thing Tom wanted to know was, was he innocent? Because he would not represent anybody who was not innocent. And Keisha told him, yes, he is, but I'm going to send you some information so that you can see it for yourself. At that point, I had all of Anthony's legal work because his son had kept all of his documentation. And he said, well, send me everything that you have. So I'm working from home. All I have is an Adobe Scan app on my phone, which can only scan one page at a time. One of Anthony's transcripts is 400 and some odd pages. That's just only one transcript. And I did that for days, you know, trying to get all the information to him. And he saw all of the discrepancies, you know, and all the violations and, and things that we had always seen. Tom knew that Anthony was innocent, and it was just astounding evidence to support that. In the rest is history. I got Tom Hoffman and Jonathan House doing my case pro bono. It's an amazing story. 
I mean, a tale of two quiches, <laughs> and which eventually resulted in these two attorneys, which of course brings us to the post-conviction litigation. And it looks like before you both got involved, there were some filings surrounding an inappropriate remark by the prosecutor, ineffective assistant claims, trial court errors, discriminatory jury challenges, all of which were serious points, but ultimately failed. There was some new evidence, a recantation of trial testimony from Graves. We know he was feeling remorseful for throwing Anthony under the bus, but he didn't want to come clean. So this affidavit really is reflective of that, meaning he doesn't tell the whole truth. He basically says that Anthony went inside Mr. Hings and he, Julius Graves, did not. He continued that he didn't see who shot Chen and was coerced to testify that he had seen Anthony do it. So it takes the onus off of Anthony, but it's definitely not the exonerating evidence that one would hope for, as were the other filings in this case. Everything that sort of happened in those initial post-trial proceedings was sort of skirmishes around secondary issues, which unfortunately is often the best you can do for a convicted person until you get a Tom Hoffman to fully reinvestigate the case like a detective. Right. Without Tom, we wouldn't know the context around Shalima's testimony, which is what passed for a corroborating witness for Graves and his whole network of liars. And then the major Brady violation in hiding Rachel for all of these years. Remember, she witnessed Charlique and Graves talking about the inappropriate touching, which established the motive. She saw Graves running from Mr. Hings with a gun. Then, when she confronted Charlique and Graves, she was threatened. You talk too much. You keep talking. I'm going to shut you up, was the quote. Not to even mention all of the previously unknown or ignored holes and shifts in Graves' narrative. And finally, we haven't even talked about this yet, but there was a cook at Mr. Hings who had a view of the shooter and described his complexion as, quote, not black. This is consistent with Graves' light brown skin, while Anthony, importantly, has a dark complexion. So, Tom, what is being done with all of the exculpatory evidence that you've compiled? The uh, 440 was initially filed in December, and we attached Rachel's affidavit, Shalima's statement. We also found this documentation that Graves had lied about reporting to his probation officer often and regularly. We also found additional Brady violations. And as the case was proceeding, we then get even more documents from FOIL, including that Graves on the day of his testimony received money, received housing together with his girlfriend, his girlfriend's brother and the brother's girlfriend. And then he eventually gets $25,000 in benefits. All this comes out. So we then amend our petition. We also found out that Cologne had told one of his friends that it was his friend who committed the shooting. Well, his friend was Julius Graves. That was only recently ascertained, as with others. And I should say, look, the current 440 ADAs, in their response, they did not address any of our allegations. Did Julius Graves lie or did he not lie? Not addressed. They said you could have a hearing. Well, the hearing's going to take quite a while. And Anthony should be home now. The evidence is overwhelming. The resistance on undoing a wrongful conviction is huge. 
Yeah, it, absolutely it is, even under normal circumstances. But here in Brooklyn, there's been an even more obstinate than usual obstacle in this case. Anthony brought his case to the Brooklyn Conviction Review Unit in 2017, and one would think that the good folks there would take one look at Graves' bullshit and do something about it. But the man tasked with running the CRU in Brooklyn since 2014 was Mark Hale, who just so happens to be the man who prosecuted Anthony's case. <laughs> but, and this is a big but, Mark Hale just retired at the beginning of July 2021. So while this is good news for Anthony, there are still plenty of ways that this might not work out. Even with Mark Hale out of the way, Brooklyn DA Eric Gonzalez continued to oppose throwing out his wrongful conviction, knowing that Anthony only had two other options. His 440 motion in front of Judge Danny Chun, who had never granted a single 440 motion in his lengthy career, or going in front of the parole board. Both were dubious avenues. So they went in front of this judge, and Julius Graves not only admitted to perjuring himself at trial, but also continued to say things that contradicted what he had previously said under oath. Meanwhile, Mark Hale also took the stand and claimed over and over again to have no memory of this case, Julius Graves, or the egregious Brady violations. The motion is still pending. Meanwhile, in the summer of 2022, Anthony was eligible for parole and the board was much more reasonable, releasing him on his first try. So Anthony, welcome back. Thank you for having me again. Well, I'm sure your family, Keisha, and everyone is just ecstatic to have you home. So tell me about your first moments on the outside with them. It was surreal. I, I couldn't believe it. December 1st, I was released. I walked through the doors. I put my different clothes on that my wife sent me. And I stood outside and I was met by her with this big hug and smiles of joy. And although I was outside, it didn't seem real. Nothing at that moment seemed real. And we drove to a nearby diner. She just wanted to make sure that I had something good to eat for a change. I had sunny side up eggs, hash browns, and some home fries. And I had some toast. And we ate and we talked. She held my hand. I held hers. And I just tried to take it all in. I got to imagine that all of this has been amazing, but bittersweet. I mean, you're finally free, but only after all of those years, years you can't get back. And there must be a lot of mixed emotions. And it's got to just be a burning desire to just clear your name. That's the main thing, because although I'm free, I'm still technically awarded a state. I'm on parole right now. I have to report to a parole officer. So whenever I need to go somewhere, I have to call and get permission to go. I thank God that the parole officer that was assigned to me is a cool parole officer. He's decent. You know, He does his job, but he's not one of those sticklers for just try to mess with people. So he's fair. But yeah, I'm still, I'm still awarded a state. So anything that could happen, God forbid... I get pulled over, somebody has a rough day, they could just throw me right back in there. So what are the plans going forward? Right now, it's a waiting game. There's nothing more we could do. Everything now rests in the hands of the judge, Danny Chung. We're just optimistic and hopeful that you know he'll, he'll do the right thing and exonerate me. If he doesn't exonerate us dead, then of course we're going to put an appeal in. Well, you have all of our support in your quest to lay claim to your actual innocence. And with that, we're going to go to closing arguments where, first of all, I'm going to thank you again. I mean, just for being you, because you inspire the fuck out of me, honestly. I know you don't curse, but I do. Um, you, you inspire me to want to work harder and smarter 
and longer hours to help the other countless number of Anthony Simses out there. And now I'm going to sit back in my chair, turn my mic off, and just listen to any closing thoughts that you may want to share. I'm, I'm really excited that you're here. I'm really excited that you're free. So Jonathan and Thomas will go, and then we're going to save you for last. I think it's important to look at the broader picture and, and how this injustice occurred. And it's because the system did not value the life of Anthony Sims. And it also did not value the life of Lee Run Chun. What we're fighting to do is to make sure that justice is served for Anthony and also for the victim, for the truth to emerge and every ounce of help we can get to ensure that happens is deeply appreciated because the truth has been clear from the start that Julius Graves was the perpetrator of this awful crime, not Anthony Sims. So thank you again, Jason. Thank you again for doing this. I believe you have had 145 podcasts of people who were wrongfully convicted. I have listened to many. While the facts vary, the stories are all the same. A horrific crime is committed drawing wide media and public attention. Perpetrators need to be taken off the street and held to account. However, the concern of the police and the prosecutors is not to find the actual perpetrator, but to give the public the perception that the case was solved. It did not matter whether the right person was brought to justice, as long as a conviction was secure and the public fear allayed. As Jonathan said, neither the victim nor the defendant's life is valued as long as the case is won. So too the public is not valued as the police did not care whether the actual perpetrator remained loose and posed a danger to the public. Also common, in order to win these cases, favorable evidence pointing away from defendant's guilt is disregarded and in contravention of the prosecutor's constitutional duty is hidden from the defendant. Meanwhile, husbands, wives, mothers, fathers, sisters, brothers, and sons, and daughters are destroyed, all in the interest of winning at all costs. People ask me, why do I do this? I, now I'm giving it away, am a Holocaust survivor. I was born in 1944. Basically, my family, extensive family, was wiped out. And that Holocaust was caused by people remaining silent. Undo this horrific injustice. Anthony? I just want to say thank you again for all the supporters. Definitely to you for taking the time out to actually hear our stories and give us a platform or give me a platform to talk about these wrongful convictions. Since I've been out, I've been doing a lot of things to try to bring awareness to criminal justice. I've been very supportive in different venues, to speaking engagements, and I will always try to lend a voice to the people who can't be heard. I just pray and hope that, you know, this nightmare is over with soon. I pray and hope that Danny Tung just does the right thing and go over the material and review everything and then exonerate me so that I can live my life. I know I'll never be able to get those years back. I know that I'll never be able to get the scar off of me of prison. You know what I'm saying? But I just want a fresh start and I just pray for that opportunity. And again, I thank y'all for the support and everything. And of course, I thank my beautiful wife because 
She's the truth. That's my better half right there. So thanks again. Thank you for listening to Wrongful Conviction. I'd like to thank our production team, Connor Hall, Jeff Clyburn, and Kevin Wardis, with research by Lila Robinson. The music in this production was supplied by three-time Oscar-nominated composer Jay Ralph. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at Wrongful Conviction, on Facebook at Wrongful Conviction Podcast, and on Twitter at Wrong Conviction, as well as at Lava for Good on all three platforms. You can also follow me on both TikTok and Instagram at It's Jason Plum. Wrongful Conviction is a production of Lava for Good Podcast in association with Signal Company Number 1. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.